Just take your Bible, turn to, uh, turn to Romans, oh my goodness, turn to Proverbs chapter 6. I'm all over the place this morning, forgive me. Proverbs chapter 6 is where we are. We're in Romans tonight. We're not going to be there today. Proverbs chapter uh, 6 uh, is kind of home base for right now. This past week as I was, um, I, I don't even remember what I was doing. Somebody probably posted this on their Facebook wall. I saw this. Now hiring people to show up at work, you know. Anybody who will show up. If you show up, that's good. Showing up is a big problem in our secular society. It's a problem among Christians too. What has happened to a biblical work ethic? What has happened to our biblical perspective on work? Why are Christians so content to not engage in work for the Lord? You know, so far in Proverbs, we've been in the book of Proverbs talking about wisdom and folly, seeing God's perspective on life. And we've seen how we have to receive wisdom from God. We have to pursue wisdom, reject folly, how to, how to listen to wisdom, how to receive wisdom, how to avoid the snares of foolishness. And so far, much of the battle has been an external, a battle from things on the outside. So we've had the, the, the uh, temptations from the world uh, throwing, uh, coming at us. So bad influences of wicked, violent men. We had that in chapter one. And then also later where, where he, they tell the young man, young man, avoid those bad guys, those gangsters who will tell you to go, let us go after innocent blood. Let us go and, and steal money from so-and-so and, and do these things. And then there's also bad influences from sensual, promiscuous women to young men. Again, the idea of, of sexuality as, as a real a, a, a snare for young people, especially, but for all, all people of all ages. Both of these snares are out there, and we have to take, uh, take very much be alert to them, be aware of them, uh, take note of them, avoid at all costs. But when we deal with this particular battle, some of the biggest temptations that we face are not temptations that exist out there. They are the temptations that exist within. They are the battle of our own heart. And, and, and the temptations we have within ourselves. So Proverbs 6 contains several of these warnings in chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. We have warnings about being a pledge for someone else, that the danger of co-signing with people. Sometimes people get in over their heads trying to be nice, trying to gain friends this way and guaranteeing something they shouldn't have. And he says, be careful about that. If you go down to verse 12 of chapter 6, you see the danger of being around wicked people again. They are a danger that wise people ought to avoid. Then down to verse 20, he says, be careful about um, adultery and general immorality. In fact, we talked about that at depth last week in Proverbs chapter 5, the danger of immorality and how we ought to have a strategy for battling that battle of immorality. But if you go down to verse, back to verse 6, chapter 6, verse 6 through 11, we have a passage here I'm going to read, and then we're going to explore what the Bible has to say, what the book of Proverbs has to say about this issue. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11 says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler provides her supplies in the winter or summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, and so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Our world today has a very clear, a very defined perspective on the issue of money, of poverty, and of wealth. I just look around and read the news and listen to people talk at your work, you'll find that most, most of all, there is a belief in our culture today that the poor are always innocent victims of the rich. There is a belief that the rich are oppressors and victimizers of the poor. There is a belief that defines rich as anyone who makes more money than me. 
And on the other side, there's a belief that we find our identity, our value, and how much money we make, as if we could be measured in a gross domestic product, that our value matters depending on how much we make. There's a belief that you ought to get as much as you can without paying for it, that you ought to use every trick in the book to make money, to make money off people, to steal from them. It's not that big of a deal if you steal from your company because the company has insurance. Slacking off isn't that big of a deal because our, property, our company probably cheated you out of something along the way. All of these are beliefs that permeate our society today, and there's, there's a big problem with all of them. In fact, let me just boil it down to this. What's wrong with being lazy? What's wrong with just taking it easy and not doing anything? What's wrong with avoiding work? Work is a spiritual matter. And God has ordained work before man sinned. Before sin entered creation through man's sin, work was given to man by God. Therefore, work is good. And work shows what you think about God, and it shows what you think about his creation. Therefore, as Christians, we must build a biblical work ethic. We must. We are, it is imperative for us as Christians to have, to build for ourselves out of the Scripture, an understanding of what God thinks and what God expects of us, what we must do. We must think as God would have us think about work, about laziness, about wealth, and about poverty. We cannot fall into, as I mentioned, these bad teachings of the world. We must be righteous in how we work. And even though money is important, we can never think of money as the final or absolute thing. Let's go to the, go to the Lord this morning and ask for his blessings as we open his word and read from it today. Father, I pray that you'd work in our hearts, that we would be willing to receive your truth today. As we talk about these matters, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves and evaluate where we have perhaps failed you in these areas. We'd seek your forgiveness, knowing that you freely give it to those who are in Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for the instruction that your word gives on all the matters of life, even this matter of work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's look at what the Bible teaches us about building a biblical work ethic. You'll find the outline inside your bulletin. In fact, you'll notice there are an extra number of blanks today. That's to keep you from being lazy, right? <laughs> I'm going to keep you on your toes today. All right. The first thing we'll see today is that a biblical work, work ethic fights laziness. A biblical work ethic fights laziness, sometimes in the Bible called sloth or sluggard. Laziness is traditionally considered to be one of the seven deadly sins. To understand how serious it is, let's look at what laziness does. What does laziness do? How does laziness reveal itself? How do we see it working? Ironically, laziness is a truly inventive sin. Those who are lazy might work very hard to be lazy. Lazy is not just the couch potatoes sitting around doing nothing. In fact, laziness involves several different aspects. First, laziness involves, and you'll see the, the blanks at the bottom there, uh, laziness involves excuse-making. I'm going to go through a lot of Proverbs today, so you don't have to turn to all these verses, but they're all listed there in your outline. Look at this verse from Proverbs 22:13. The lazy man says, there's a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. The lazy person will find any reason not to go about their responsibilities, even making up a scenario that there's a deadly lion out there that's going to kill me if I go out in the street. Now, it doesn't mind. It doesn't matter that there are people living their daily lives. There's a lion in the street. Then what he does, he congratulates himself on his safety. He congratulates himself on being so careful, never mind the fact that everyone else is just fine. If you find yourself an excuse maker, 
If you find yourself making these excuses as why you're not able to do things, perhaps this is an area where you struggle. How have you allowed the world around you to become your enemy, I mean, sorry, to become your excuse for being lazy or being spiritually lazy? Have you allowed the dangers around you, the potential dangers around you? How is it that we've allowed COVID to become this for us, for so many? We say, oh, I can't do that. There's a lion in the streets. There's a potential danger. There's a virus in the world. Friends, you know, there are coronaviruses that will be here for a long time. And we are going to fight disease. We're going to fight diseases until Jesus comes back. It's just the way it's going to be. We live in a fallen world. We cannot walk around pretending like anytime we do anything, we might get hurt. Are you going to get hurt sometimes? Yeah. Is there a potential for danger? Every time you step out of your house, there's a potential for danger. But you cannot use excuses to keep you from serving the Lord. If you're going to have excuses, you're just like this foolish, excuse-making, lazy man. Making excuses is what laziness does. Laziness looks around and says, I can't do that because I have an excuse. Secondly, laziness always is at rest, always trying to avoid work. Look at chapter 6 again in verse 9. If you're still in chapter 6, you'll see here he says, How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. They work hard at lying about the house. Avoiding work by resting is the opposite of God's design in creation. What did God do for six days? He worked for six days, and then he rested. What do we tend to do? We rest six days, so maybe we can work on a seventh. Laziness is the inversion of what God has designed. We work so we may rest. We do not rest so we may work. I mean, there is some aspect of we rest so we can work because we have energy too. But the idea here is we rest as a respite from work. Work ought to be the norm. And rest is on the side. Yet this person is constantly sleeping. They are, they are um, constantly resting. They are folding their hands rather than working with their hands. Also, notice if you go forward to chapter 24, there's another passage here, chapter 24, starting in verse 30, there's a neglect of what God has entrusted. Laziness is someone who neglects what God has entrusted to him. In chapter 34, verse 30 through 32, the, uh, Solomon describes here, he says, I went by the field of the lazy man, by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. So we know he's lazy. We know that he is devoid of understanding. He's not wise and he sees. There it was, the field, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles, as weeds. Stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. We're going to revisit these passages again, but I want you first to look what the lazy person has been given. He has a field. He has a vineyard. He has a wall. And all of these have been neglected. Everything that God has entrusted to him has been neglected. There's a tendency for what we have, if we neglect it, it will go downhill. If you don't believe me, look at your teenager's bedroom. It all goes downhill. Things tend to deteriorate. Without active work, things tend to go downhill. And laziness is neglecting what God has entrusted to us. One day we will look up and realize we have lost what has been entrusted to us because of our neglect, laziness, what laziness does. It makes excuses. It is always at rest, and it neglects what God gives. But here we're also going to see what laziness brings. What is the result of laziness in a Christian's life or in a person's life? First, laziness brings disorder. 
you're in Proverbs 24, so you can look at verse 30 and 31, he gives the picture of, of the lazy man's field, and you'll notice it is overgrown with thorns. It is covered with weeds, and its wall is broken down. There is complete disorder and chaos in this person's house and in this person's field, and it is public chaos. The person does not have to go inside this person's house to see the chaos of the lazy person. He just drives by or walks by or goes by and sees there's the chaos. The, the, the chaos and the disorder that comes, it's like the second law of thermodynamics, the, the entropy law that says that as you leave things on their own, things will tend to go downhill. Or you have to put energy into something to keep order there. And friends, all of life is like that. If you neglect parts of your life due to laziness, you will find disorder and chaos. You will also find irritation from those who rely on you. This verse, Proverbs 10, 26, was quoted at me more times than I care to mention. The verse is this, as vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy man to those who send him. If you ever have taken a drink of vinegar straight, some of you guys, for some reason, do that apple cider vinegar. I don't understand why you put that stuff in your body, but some of you do that stuff, and, and I just smelling it makes my teeth hurt, like right here. And that sour kind of, that, that, that uh, feeling, I don't know how else to describe it, uh, that vinegar to the teeth, to the jaw, to the mouth not pleasant. Straight vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. You ever ever been in a fire and and the smoke like billows in your face and you're trying to get out of the way and and, uh, you do everything you can. Smoke, it's irritating. It gets in your eyes. There's an irritation. What a picture that if you are a lazy person and someone wants to send you to do a job, you are to them like vinegar in their teeth and smoke in their eyes. You will be an irritant. You'll be an irritation to those who employ you and those who desire to to work with you. No one wants to be that. You want to be pleasant. You want to be someone who people enjoy being around. Laziness brings irritation. And and, and notice the last point here, laziness will also bring poverty. Now, at some point in your childhood, you realize that some people are rich and others are poor. Although it's not the case that every time someone is poor, they have been lazy. That's not the case. The reverse is often the case. Those who are lazy often see poverty coming as a result of their laziness. You see what I'm saying? I'm not saying that every person who's poor has been lazy. I'm saying that if you are lazy, you will often find yourself poor. At the end of these two passages we looked at, we have a similar refrain. In chapter 6, in verse 10 and 11, he says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding your hands to sleep, so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. What a picture. You're just minding your own business, going about your life, enjoying the pleasure of sleep, and you get jumped. You get mugged. You get robbed by poverty. You don't see it coming, but it's there. It was coming the whole time, and you were oblivious to it. There's also another passage in 24. He says the same thing, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a, like a prowler, your need like an armed man, like someone with a knife coming at you and robbing you. This is what happens when poverty comes upon you. If you are lazy, you might not be poor now, but you can be sure your poverty will come upon you and it will surprise you. But you shouldn't be surprised because God warned you this would happen. Poverty comes if you are slack, you will become poor, Proverbs 10.4. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, 
but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Again, another rule of thumb. And the amazing thing is that when you're lazy, it does not mean that just because you're lazy, you don't have as much. Because of your laziness, that results from your laziness. You, you does not mean that you want less. In, in Proverbs chapter 13, the Bible tells us the soul of the lazy man desires and has nothing. But the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. The lazy desires many things, but don't have the diligent to make it happen. They have ideas, but cannot execute. What laziness does, what laziness brings, and finally, what laziness needs. What does laziness need? Turn back to Proverbs 6 if you're not there. Notice that laziness needs a reality check. Laziness needs reality. You need someone to shake you awake and say, you can learn how not to be lazy by looking at an insignificant ant. You don't have to go get in school and learn a bunch of lessons and pay somebody lots of money. Look at the ant. How foolish are you? Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. She has no captain, overseer, or ruler, yet she provides her supplies in the summer, gathers her food in the harvest. She doesn't need anyone telling her what to do, and she doesn't. Why do you need someone forcing you to work? Go and look around. Rise from your slumber. You don't have to go far to find the lesson. It's right there in front of you. You can find wisdom from how God has designed the world to work. Even the humble ant works with industry. No one is her boss, yet she does what she must. Reality. And secondly, rebuke. There's a call for the lazy slugger to arise and consider. That means he hasn't done so. And the questions continue to the, to the sluggard. He says, how long will you slumber? How long or when will you rise from your sleep? How can you possibly keep sleeping? When will you get going? It needs to be rebuked. You need to be, we all need to be, when we are lazy, we need to be rebuked with reality. In fact, if you turn your Bible to First um, Thessalonians, you don't have to turn there, but First Thessalonians chapter 3, the passage I read this morning at the beginning of our um, of, the, of the service, the, the Scripture actually tells it, teaches us that, that the, the church itself, it said, you should withdraw from brothers who walk in a disorderly way. That word disorderly means with idleness. It means that they were, they were being abusive of the generosity of others, and they were not working. That's why he says, we teach that if any man ought not to work, neither should he eat. Verse 10. Uh, that's in this next, if we commanded to do this. If anyone will not work, neither should we eat. And there is, a, there is a responsibility that we have. If we are going to be believers, we ought to be reminded of this truth that a biblical work ethic fights laziness. As Christians, we ought to be known as people of industry, people with a good work ethic. In fact, there was actually a name for that. They called it the Protestant work ethic. It comes from this kind of mindset. Let's keep going because there's a second aspect to laziness, and the first aspect is this fighting laziness. The second aspect is this trusting God's wisdom, because why are we lazy? There's a couple reasons why. One of them is that we think that if we don't enjoy pleasure now, we might never get to, or or we, we don't think that if we actually work, it will benefit us. But the Bible teaches us all kinds of truths about things. In fact, here, the Bible teaches us that we are not to lean on our own understanding, but we are to trust God's wisdom concerning several things. First, concerning the source of poverty and riches. Sometimes it's God's will that you're poor, but many times 
Poverty is a direct result of bad decisions, bad choices, and rejecting God's wisdom. You don't believe me? Look at what the Word of God says. The Bible tells us that he who loves pleasure will be a poor man, and he who loves wine and oil will not be rich. If you love nice things, you could end up poor. Our culture teaches the opposite. It teaches that you've got to like the nice things, and that's how a rich person acts. But you realize that loving pleasure is actually the road towards poverty. Secondly, there's another thing that... uh, the source of poverty and riches. Poverty might come from borrowing too much. The the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Or it's possible that poverty might come from your own oppression or your choice to try to bribe or use your riches the wrong way. He who oppresses the poor to increase his riches, and he who gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. Look at that second part, giving to the rich. There are some who have money, but because of bad choices, oppressing the poor and trying to bribe the rich, this man finds himself in poverty. He will surely come. This will inevitably end up in poverty. He thinks he's exploiting the poor, and he will end up in poverty, or he thinks he is bribing the rich, and he will end up in poverty. Friends, we must trust God's wisdom concerning the source of poverty and riches. Where do riches come from? Well, many Americans think of themselves as self-made. Where do riches come from? From me. I built this. I did this. I built this company from the ground up, and this is my company. And why do I, you know, not, this is not me talking, obviously. I don't have a company, but some of, I've heard people say this. You know, the secret success is to the, entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial American spirit of building a company and then selling it and making lots of money. Where do riches come from? The Bible tells us that riches are a blessing from God. Notice what the Bible tells us in, in Proverbs chapter 10. God is the one who makes rich. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich. He adds no sorrow with it, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich. The fear of the Lord brings life, honor, and riches. I'm sorry, those first two lines are not part of the passage. I, I added that in as, a, as an explanation, forgot to take it out. Notice verse 20, chapter 22, verse 4. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Riches come from our blessing from God, and riches come from applied wisdom. In chapter 3, verse 13 and 16, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Length of days is in her right hand, and her left hand are riches and honor. And then Proverbs 8, 18, riches and honor are with wisdom, enduring riches and righteousness. When wisdom speaks, she tells the foolish person that if he would pursue her, he will find riches and righteousness. Living out wisdom means living in light of how the world really works. Where do riches come from? Riches also come from a diligent lifestyle. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. We've already read that, but Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. And the soul of the lazy man desires, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. I also want to make a note here that riches don't only come from your own diligence, but this one might be a little self, or it might not be as obvious on the front, but riches actually come from a generous lifestyle. When you are generous, the Scripture says that you will benefit. Proverbs eleven twenty five: the generous soul will be made what? Rich. He who waters will be watered himself. He who gives to the poor will not lack. He who hides his eyes will have many curses. Even in the New Testament, we have this example from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 
But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you are generous, and this is not just talking about giving to the church, if you're blessing other people with your wealth, if you are blessing others, if you're living a generous lifestyle, God blesses you with riches because to whom much is given, much shall be required, and God blesses those who honor Him with their wealth. I also want to talk about not only are we going to take God's wisdom concerning the source of poverty and riches, we need to see God's wisdom concerning the limits of blessings and wealth. Because why does God want us to be industrious, industrious in our work? Is God, is God primarily, here's another question to think about, is God primarily concerned that we have a high GDP as a church? Like that our gross domestic product is, is outstanding and that we are, a, is God primarily concerned with that? No, not at all. Is God primarily concerned with you making as much money as possible? I, I don't think so. In fact, uh, I think a lot of our concern comes from the fact that we, I mentioned it the early, uh, earlier, I think we have bought into a lie. Many of us think that we're poor. You, you realize that, that I, don't know of a, I don't know of anyone here, and if, if, you do, if this does fit your category, please tell me because we can help you. I don't know of anyone here who does not know where their, their next meal is coming from, who cannot find some food somewhere, who someone will not provide for them, or they cannot find some food. Now, I know there are people like that, but in general, in our country today, most people, most people have access to some food. It is a, we are in a very wealthy society. If you go any travel, go travel anywhere, and, and you look around, and here's the issue. Most people think themselves as poor because we are greedy people. We look at people who make more money than us, and we think, I can't possibly be rich. Look at them. They're so wealthy. Friend, if we could just take a perspective that God has given us so much, and we are so blessed. We are unbelievably blessed as a country, as people. We are gathered here together, and we even, I mean, it's hot outside. It's cool in here. We, we got new air conditioning. Praise the Lord. We, we can be in relative comfort in a relatively safe environment. God has been so good. We ought to recognize there are limits to wealth. I want you to notice that, that there are several limits the Bible teaches us to wealth, and we ought to be careful not to think that we are poor because we are very rich. Number one, riches do not last forever. Do not overwork to be rich because of your own understanding, cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings and fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Why would you give your life to something that will pass away? Why would you spend all your time to get that extra promotion for that extra percentage work so you can have that little extra more to spend on that thing that will rust and die and go away, and when you die, everyone will not know how to operate it, so they'll give it away to goodwill. Like, that's what your life is, right? Why do we sweat and toil for stuff? It is worthless. Why do we do this? We, do, we need to recognize that riches will not last. You cannot trust in riches. Many of, all, all of us have felt the, the hole in our pocket, you know? Uh, burning up money, burning a hole in our pocket. We, we have that, that money. We've got to spend it on something. And, and, and so we want to spend. We buy frivolous things. We have bought so much stuff that the, the biggest, biggest industry in Rock Hill is storage units. You know, people rent storage units to put their junk in so then they can clear out their garage and put more junk in their garage. And, and that's where we are, friends. That's where we are as a culture. We have bought this belief 
that wealth will bless us and will we'll be great, but the Bible tells us don't set your eyes on that which is not. There are, there are blessings of wealth. We should not go on the other extreme and say wealth has no value or wealth is undesirable. Clearly, God blesses people with wealth for a reason because, I mean, if you look at what the Scripture, it says wealth can do some things. Wealth can provide physical security. A rich man's wealth is a strong city. It's like a high wall in his own esteem. A man can build a wall around himself with, with money, and a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. Wealth can be physical security. Wealth can actually provide you friends. I'm sorry this writing is so small. But the poor man is hated even by his own neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Wealth makes many friends, but the poor is separated from his friend. Proverbs 19, 7, all the brothers of the poor hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He may pursue them with words, yet they abandoned him. You recognize there is a blessing to wealth, but there are limits to wealth. We need to recognize that God has told us where wealth and where riches and where poverty comes from. He has also told us about the limits and about the blessings of wealth. Wealth is a blessing, but there are limits to it, and we ought not to pursue it. If you want to read more on that, read the book of Ecclesiastes and see what the Bible teaches us about how wealth is something that's like striving after wind. But there also is a responsibility of the wealthy. What is the responsibility of the wealthy? And I would include pretty much us all in this category. Don't abuse the poor because he is poor. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, nor oppress, oppress the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who plundered him. Do not think just for a moment because you have more money than someone in South Sudan that you are more valuable than they are. They need Jesus too. Don't think for a moment that you, because you're sophisticated and you're an American and you have an ICE education, a nice car and a nice suit, that you are more valuable than someone who does not have those things. Recognize it's your responsibility to not oppress those who are below you in this particular, in wealth. We'll also notice here that we ought to see that there is a, cons- the, the, the true value of riches ought to be recognized. There are some things that are more valuable than riches, much more valuable. I'm going to list them for you here at the bottom of the screen as I turn to these verses, the Bible tells us that wealth has its limits, that it cannot profit you in the day of righteous and the day of judgment because righteousness is more valuable than wealth. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Righteousness delivers from death, and he who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Also, the Bible tells us that wisdom is more profitable Wisdom is more profitable than silver or gold. Her proceeds are better than the profits of silver. Her gain than fine gold. Receive my instruction, Proverbs 8, and not silver. Knowledge rather than choice gold. Proverbs 8, 19, my fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold. My revenue than choice silver, Proverbs 16. How much better to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. You need to pursue wisdom more than you pursue a paycheck. We I mean, recognize that riches are great, riches are good. It is good to have material blessings. God has blessed us with so many material blessings. God is so good, yet that's not the end. And then there's another thing that is more valuable than riches, a good name. Your reputation is more important than great riches. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver or gold. Friends, don't ruin your reputation, your testimony for the sake of riches. 
a good name. It's interesting at the end of Proverbs, he mentions that a good spouse or a good wife is much better than rubies. Who can find a virtuous wife? Her worth is far above rubies. A good spouse. As we wrap things up, I'd like to just conclude by pointing out that a biblical work ethic does not mean that God will provide. Let me put it this way. God will provide is not an excuse for laziness. Quote, God will provide. Uh, God will provide, quote unquote, is not mean that someone will come along and give you something without you working for it. Sometimes God provides, um, looks a lot like work boots and a pair of gloves. God, God will provide means that God has given you the health. He has given you the opportunity to provide for yourself and for your family. I want you to turn to a few passages with me. I'm sorry, some of you are closing your Bibles. I need you to open them right back up. We've got three more passages to look at, and then we're done. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12 and verse 48. Luke 12 and verse 48. Jesus, in giving a parable, finishes the parable by saying this. Luke 12, 48. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much shall be or will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So many Americans believe that they could never possibly be the one that Jesus is talking about here. We're just middle-class Americans. We don't have much. Friends, you have much more than you possibly could imagine. Compared to, the, if you look at the history of this world and the history of poverty and riches and what you have in wealth compared to the, the history of humanity, if you scaled that, it's amazing what God has blessed us with. This means we need to step up. With whom much has been given, much shall be required. We have been given so much, we need to step up. Let me give you some examples. Within the church today, we have some longstanding volunteer needs. Number one, we have need for nursery workers. Number two, we have need for ushers and greeters. These are longstanding jobs. They get little attention, little fanfare. We need some of you who are coming week by week and sitting and enjoying the service to recognize that God has called us to serve and to work. Speaking very frankly, how can you serve in the church if you don't know where your ministry is? If I say, what's your ministry in the church, and you don't really know, I just gave you two possibilities. You can serve in this church, and you can serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, and there's no reason to have excuses. Secondly, turn to Philippians chapter 4. To whom much is given, much shall be required. Philippians chapter 4, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 4, and verse 11, that we need to, secondly, honor the Lord with our contentment. In Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 11 through verse 13, Paul says this, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You've heard that last verse quoted a thousand times. Did you recognize the context? He's saying, I can do all things. I can be poor and I can be rich. I can be abased and I can abound. I can do all things through Christ. Would you honor the Lord with your contentment? That means rejecting covetousness. That means rejecting greed. 
Thirdly, would you go to Psalm 37? This last little bit, I just want to say that we must trust in the Lord's ability, God's ability to take care of his own. Psalm 37, 25. Psalm 37, 25 says, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. God does not promise you an iPhone 13. God does not promise you a brand new car. God does not even promise you a big house with a pool. God promises food and raiment, and he will take care of those who trust him. We need to trust that God will take care of his own. As I read at the beginning of the service today, Jesus speaking to his disciples, therefore I say, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, or your body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food, the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouses nor a barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Which of you, by worrying, can add a cubit to his stature, and you're not able to do the least? Why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass which today is the field, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? And what's the key? What's the missing ingredient? O you of little faith. Trust God can protect you. Trust God can provide for you. And step out in faith. Stop saying there's a lion in the street. I can't go outside. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Trust the Lord, O you of little faith, and God will provide for us. Let's develop a biblical work ethic. To whom much is given, much shall be required. Honor the Lord with all that we have and trust in God's ability to care for his own. Father, we ask today that you would help us to evaluate our hearts. I know all of us could look at our lives and see areas where we have been lazy, whether it's spiritual laziness where we have been content to not work for you, but to sit back and allow others to do the job of the work, the spiritual work of the church. I pray, God, that you would lovingly confront and help us to submit our hearts to you and be willing to step out in faith. For there are some who probably are still uh, struggling with fear, and, and they struggle, and they've used their excuse-making uh, too long. Father, lovingly confront them and show them their need to trust you and to have faith to step forward and know that you will care for them. And Lord, may we, may we recognize that we are not called to be on flowery beds of ease. We are called to be soldiers of the cross. And so may we take up our cross daily. May we choose to take and do that which you've called us to do, even when it leads to less physical wealth, perhaps, but more spiritual blessings. And may we choose the riches of heaven, where neither moth nor rust does corrupt, and thieves cannot break in and steal, because where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. And Lord, I pray that as there have been many who probably look at their lives and see areas that need to be confessed, I pray that even now they would be honest before you and confess that. But you'd help us not to be lifted up in pride, thinking that we have it all figured out, knowing that we have been given so much And we can look around and see our great wealth and our great riches and be so grateful for how you have provided. God, you are so good to us. But to whom much is given, much shall be required. And so may we keep our end of this bargain. 
May we serve you with our whole heart, knowing that you're the one who's given us the ability to gather even here this morning. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.